Genesis 25. Uh, this is, I want to orient us a little bit into the, the time period that we're looking at tonight, and then uh, look at another passage of scripture talking about Esau, and then we'll, we'll go into the story from there. So I'm hoping to talk about Esau tonight more and more Jacob uh, next week. I assume it's going to be next week for class. So, uh, looking at towards the end of Genesis 25, Genesis 25 sort of starts out with the genealogy of Ishmael, and uh, you're not late. Right on time. Uh, so chapter 25 starts out with the genealogy of Ishmael, and then it kind of moves into okay, and this is what I, who Isaac's descendants are. But in order to place ourselves in the story, um, in the right time frame. So Sarah has been gone now for a number of years. Abraham is 160, and Isaac is 60, which means that he has now been married for 20 years, and uh, has not. And Rebecca has yet to have any children up, up to that point, or at least sons. This makes it sound like they weren't able to have any children whatsoever for the first 20 years of their marriage. Uh, so Rebecca's probably, we're going to say, mid-30s to 40. Isaac's 60, Abraham's 160, but it seems like Isaac is kind of recognized as being the head of the, the group now. Uh, and Ishmael has gone off and done his thing. And we come to the story of the, uh, the birth of Jacob and Esau. So I'm going to read two passages for you. First off, I'm going to read the, the story of Jacob and Esau just a little bit here in Genesis 25. Then I'm going to move to the book of Malachi. All right, Genesis 25, 19. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begat Isaac, and when Isaac was 40 years old, he took Rebekah to wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian, of Padan Abram, the sister to Laban, the Syrian. And Isaac entreated the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord was entreated of him, and Rebekah his wife conceived. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it be so, why am I thus? And she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said unto her, Two nations are in thy womb, and two manner of people shall be separated from thy bowels, one the one people shall be stronger than the other people, and the elder shall serve the younger. And when her days to be delivered were fulfilled, behold, there were twins in her womb, and the first came out red, all over hairy like all over like a hairy garment, and they called his name Esau. And after that came his brother out, and his hand took hold on Jacob on Esau's heel, and his name was called Jacob, and Isaac was threescore years old when she bare them. And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter and man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So that's the introduction that Genesis gives us to Jacob and Esau. The book of Malachi has something to say about these two folks, specifically uh, Esau here. I have loved you, saith the Lord, yet ye say, wherein hast thou loved us? Was not Esau Jacob's brother, saith the Lord? Yet I loved Jacob, and I hated Esau. Have you ever come across passages of scripture where you read it and it just like, okay, what does that mean? And you kind of just move on because you don't really have time or the experience or the tools to figure out what's going on. Well, Malachi chapter one was one of those places for me. Are you comfortable with scripture saying, with God saying, I loved Jacob and I hated Esau? You like that? So the word hate here means to despise something that is odious. I love the word odious. In other words, it's something that stinks. 
in God's eyes. It's something, something that gives off a stench. And God is saying that about Esau. So why would God, the question sort of comes to mind, uh, first off, why would God say hate about something that he created in his image, or about a person that he created in his image, namely Esau here? God says, I hated Esau. And he, and he goes on to describe in Malachi chapter 1 a little bit more about that. And you find out that it's not even just talking about Esau, it's kind of talking about the people of Edom as a whole, which were Esau's descendants. Um, but that does bring about the question, why would God talk like that about someone? And two, if God is going to talk that way about someone, did he just decide that that's how it's going to be? Or was it because of something they did? You follow the question? In other words, which came first? Was it that God hated Esau because of the choices that Esau made? Or was it because God hated Esau and there was nothing Esau could do that was his path dictated to him from the womb, and there was that was just how it was. What do you think? Now, the comfortable answer, I think, is that God said that about Esau because of the way Esau was acting, right? Because we're not comfortable with the idea of God deciding something, deciding something about me that that it makes it where it takes where it makes it feel like I've, my choice has been taken away. Because that's what it feels like in this in this case for Esau. I want to show you some verses here. Uh, I think I have them up on the screen. Bother, I don't. I must have deleted them. Did I delete them? Yes, I did. Okay. So here they are. Uh, two verses for you to think about. Exodus 33:19. And he said, this is God talking to Moses, I will make all my goodness pass before thee, and I will proclaim the name of the Lord before thee, and will be gracious, uh, now here's the phrase, and will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. In other words, God's saying, if I decide I'm going to be merciful, then I'm going to be merciful. And if I decide I'm going to be gracious to someone, then I'm going to be gracious to them. What about the people that God decides not to be gracious to? Is that fair? Because Jeremiah talks about the same thing when he when uh, he uses the illustration of a wheel or of a potter making something, and God asks Jeremiah, "I made it. Isn't it my right to make some good and to make some bad?" Here's another verse for you from Romans. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, "Even for this purpose have I raised thee up, that I might show my power in thee." And that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Therefore he hath therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will he hardeneth. Now we generally tend to believe, I think, in our Anabaptist circles, we believe in the power of choice. But that sounds like a pretty good argument for predestination, doesn't it? And then you come to a verse like here in Malachi chapter one, where God says, I love Jacob. And I hated Esau. So what do we do with that? So some of the reactions that I think we have is that okay. So so I talked about I, I talked about this concept at home earlier this year, and we got a guy in our church. He's not a member, but uh, he comes from more of a Calvinist background, and he hit me up after the message because I talked about the well. I shared what I some of what I'm going to share tonight. And he said he disagreed with me. God chose, God decided that Esau was going to be a vessel to dishonor, essentially, and Jacob was going to be used of God for his purposes, 
and that was it. They had no say in the matter. And he laid out a pretty good, well-thought-out, convincing argument for why he felt that way. He used a lot of scripture and things like that. Now, I come at it from a different angle, and I think we do have a choice. And I'm not trying to box God into a, certain, into a certain way of doing things here, but I want to look at this story a little more, because we would say, how could a fair and loving God hate Esau? When it's pretty clear that none of us would want to be in Esau's shoes if that was the case, right? We want to be in the, in the, in the camp where God loves us. But the question is, so do I have anything to do with it or don't I? I think most of us are familiar with the stories of Jacob and Esau. But I want to point out something here. Because it's easy to... Well, no, I'm not getting ahead of myself. Because it's easy to think, well, God loved Jacob because Jacob was good. God hated Esau because Esau was bad. And that's not the case. And next time, probably, hopefully next time in class, we'll look at Jacob in just a little bit more detail. But uh, it's something that's interesting about this story is that Jacob was no saint. Like you think about what all Jacob pulled off in his time. His name means supplanter, or essentially someone who overthrows uh, like a rebel or a deceiver. That's, that was his name, and he, he came by it honestly. But uh, a deeply flawed person does not appear to be someone filled with good morals and virtue. And uh, that is actually something that's worth noting about the patriarchs of Israel. And it's actually something that should give us hope. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... They had some things going for them, and they made some stupid mistakes. And yet God used them. And yet today, you know, 4,000 years later, 3,500 years later, we look back and lift them up as the, as the people, the progenitors of the people of God. So Jacob and Esau are the third set of brothers like this mentioned in Genesis. The first one being Cain and Abel, then you have Ishmael and Isaac, and now finally you have Esau and Jacob. And their stories have some similarities the younger brother seems to be the better of the two in, in at least the story of Cain and Abel and the story of Isaac and Ishmael. You have the younger brother being the guy that comes out as truly the more righteous person. Certainly in the story of, of Cain and Abel, it looks like that to be the case also in the story of Ishmael and Isaac. But this story is completely different. Jacob is not chosen based on his virtue. Because honestly, he doesn't have a lot. He's not the obvious good guy in the story. So Genesis 25, verse 27, I'm going to read that for you again here. It describes in brief uh, Jacob and Esau, and we're going to look at that description a little more closely and see, uh, see what Genesis is telling us about these two men. Verse 27, And the boys grew, and Esau was a cunning hunter, a man of the field, and Jacob was a plain man dwelling in tents. So let's look at those two words there in a bit more detail. Yada. It's a, it's a pretty common Hebrew word. It's uh, also used in Exodus when God looked on the children of Israel. He heard their cry and he looked to see what was happening to them. That word yada is used there in Exodus 1. Uh, but it means to know, to be aware, to have understanding, and skillful. That's how Esau is described here. That's, that's, that's some of the stuff that's wrapped up in that word cunning. Jacob, on the other hand, is a plain man. The Hebrew word plain there is tom. It means, and not Tom as in, you know, Tom Hanks. It's Tom. It's not a name. I know where I come from. They say Tom for Tom. Uh, Tom means complete, morally pious, undefiled. And you look at that description, you're like, yep, Jacob was the first name that came to mind when I saw that description. Seriously. We look at the story of Jacob, we're like, nah, 
That's not him. That doesn't describe him. And yet, that's the word that's used here. And I was thinking about that. I was like, uh, actually, this word Tom is used other places in the Old Testament. It's translated as perfect, upright, and undefiled. And it's like, you know, words come to mind when you think of describing Jacob, and these aren't the words. He was anything but that for much of his life. So I don't know why this word is used, except possibly to contrast the description of Jacob with the description of Esau. And, and, and I'm going to explain that for you here. It seems that, and I could be wrong, okay, this is, this is Nate talking here, Nate, Nate commentary, but it seems that the, the author of Genesis here that's writing this story is contrasting Esau as being a person that's aware, understanding, skillful, somebody who's, so last time I talked about the story of the, uh, the Egyptian mythology, where you have the falcon, the, 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 the one that sees everything that's going on, and then you have like the kind, wise, benevolent king who just assumes everybody has a good heart and is going to do what they should. And it seems like this is a little bit the contrast that's happening here. Um, I think this, pot, this difference could better be described as ignorance or innocence or naivety. Because that's really the opposite of somebody with knowledge. When you have somebody that's aware, somebody that sees what's going on, somebody that understands, the opposite of that is somebody who is, has their head in the sand, who is blissfully unaware, has no clue what's going on. And I think that's probably a more, a more accurate description of what Genesis is trying to give us of who Jacob and Esau are. Um, here's, a, here's another way of looking at that. So Esau is a cunning hunter. We could say he is awake, alert, and full of knowledge. Jacob being a plain man, and that did not mean that he wore a black hat. Okay, that's not the kind of plain we're talking about. Someone who is asleep without much knowledge. And in a lot of ways, it is the, uh, it is the, the watchful visionary contrasted with the benevolent king. Who just kind of hopes that everything will, will work out, but doesn't really have the, the wisdom and the foresight to see what's going on. You could contrast it as a visionary with a conservative. Jacob and Esau, or Esau and Jacob, I should say. That seems to me to be a better, a more accurate description of what's going on here. Esau, awake, alert, and full of knowledge, a man who followed his own mind and made his own decisions, contrasted with Jacob, who lacked the confidence and vision to make decisions and stick with them. That seems to be the case, because Esau is, the, is really the guy that makes things happen. He's the guy that's going out and hunting, uh, and Jacob's the guy that's staying home, essentially helping mom in the kitchen. And by the way, when Jacob, um, when Jacob and uh, and Rebecca pulled off their little stunt there in in, in Genesis 20, 27, 26, in the next chapter, Jacob is already seventy five years old. You talk about living in your parents' basement for a while. Jacob had that trick, you know, like down to a T. And he's seventy five years old, and his mom puts him up to tricking his blind dad to stealing what rightfully belonged to his brother. So it kind of tells you about the depth of Jacob's moral character, you know? Um, he didn't even really bother to find himself a wife. No surprise, he probably never got out of the house, I guess. Um, but he's the guy that you can imagine in today's world who, who maybe has a college degree, but sits at home and lives in his parents' basement and plays video games all day. Just, just not doing anything with himself. And... Maybe, maybe, that's a, maybe that's a bit, uh, taking it a bit far, but Jacob's, Jacob's lack of a backbone 
I think, is probably never more clear than when Rebecca puts him up to tricking his father. And there's this really interesting quote by Jordan Peterson. He says this, If you don't know where you stand, someone else that does will come along and you will become their puppet. And I think that's true. Because that's what happened to Jacob. No backbone, did not know where he stood. Someone else came along, in this case his mother, sold him a good story, and he did exactly what she wanted him to. He had no moral virtue of his own to stand on. So, that was a little detour, though, because the point of this lesson is not Jacob. I include Jacob in this story because I want to show you that he wasn't that great of a person either. So this is not a case of, of, of uh, Esau was just evil and Jacob was good and God's choice was obvious. That's not does not seem to be the problem here or the, 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 uh, the point of the story. Both sons were flawed. So the question remains then, why would God say in Malachi that he loves the one and hates the other? So I want to go through the story there of Genesis 25 again a little bit. Um, Isaac and Rebekah had two sons, Jacob and Esau. So as we, we've been talking about the formation of the, uh, of the covenants, of God with Abraham, God with Isaac, um, of what all that meant. What did it really mean to be a son of Isaac? Because, so none of you chose your parents, obviously. Um, but there's certain things that go along with being a child of your parents that you know because you belong in this family, right? Um, in other words, if your father is a business owner, or and a very successful one, let's say, maybe you intuitively know that if you choose to, you can become a part of the business when you become of age. There's things that go along with, with, uh, with being born into a certain family that we just kind of know. Well, what are some of those things for Jacob and Esau then? What does God have to say about Abraham's seed? Maybe in review here a little bit. This is, this is some of the things that God said to Abraham. Seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because of him, shall be blessed in him, for I know him, that he will command his children and his household after them, after him, and they shall keep the way of the Lord to do justice and judgment. Genesis 17, 9, Thou shalt keep my covenant, therefore thou and thy seed after thee in their generations. Jacob and Esau were brought up under this kind of teaching. Because remember, for the first 15 years of their lives, Abraham was still around. Now, I don't know how much, uh, how you know, cognitive Abraham was in the last 15 years of his life, but safe to say they knew there was something special about being descended from Abraham through Isaac. To be a son of Isaac meant that they would be circumcised on the eighth day. They were descendant of the covenant to be the people of God. That means that Isaac likely told them, someday this land is going to be ours. God's making us his people. God's made a covenant with us. According to their culture, Esau, as the oldest son, would have been given a double portion of Jacob's wealth and been then responsible to lead the Abrahamic clan. Now, we have the prophecy that's given to um, Rebekah when she was pregnant, that the elder shall serve the younger. But that doesn't mean that Esau was disinherited. Abraham made covenants with God, Isaac made covenants with God, and I would have assumed that Esau, had he taken his rightful place in, in, uh, in Isaac's family, would have also made covenants with God in his day. And that ended up being Jacob. 
So what do we notice about the early life of these two boys? Talked about this last time. Their mother was not a local Canaanite woman. Abraham, Abraham specifically requested that Isaac not take a wife from among the Canaanites. So you could say that Esau and Jacob had two things drilled into them from birth. One, you are God's people. That means you enter into the covenant of circumcision. That means you enter into the covenant of what God has commanded you to do. Second, you're not to take heathen wives from among the locals. How many of you know your parents' love story? You should ask them sometime. I mean, I know it might gross you out, but you should ask them sometime. Because it's your history. And I imagine that Rebecca told the story to her two small boys when they were growing up of how she was at a normal day one time and watering a stranger's camels and ends up leaving home and becoming the wife of this man, Isaac. And along with that story would have come along the idea that Abraham was not, would not accept for Isaac to take a local wife. In other words, these boys are being indoctrinated into what it means to be a descendant of Abraham and the things that go along with that. They were, they were to be responsible to continue the line of the covenant and raise up a pure seed to follow God. Now the other th interesting thing we see about these guys is that they were already at odds with each other in the womb. For those of you that haven't had children yet, um, I noticed in the last few months before Cliff and Krista had their twins that she looked awfully uncomfortable when she would come around. Now imagine <laughs> carrying twins and having them kick and struggle and carry on to the point where you go and ask God, like, uh, excuse me, is there something I'm missing here? Because these guys are really going for it. And God tells Rebecca that you have two nations inside your womb and that uh, they are going to uh, essentially be struggling with each other. Which is uh, which means they were good Hebrews, because as we'll get into hopefully in the next lesson, Israel, Israelite essentially means the people who wrestle with God. So they were fighting already from the womb. So look at Genesis 25 and verse 29 now. I'm going to go through this next story here a little bit. And Jacob, uh, let's start verse 28. And Isaac loved Esau, because he did eat of his venison, but Rebekah loved Jacob. And Jacob sawed pottage, and Esau came from the field, and he was faint. And Esau said to Jacob, Feed me, I pray thee, with that same red pottage, for I am faint. Therefore his name was called Edom. And Jacob said, Sell me this day thy birthright. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? And Jacob said, Swear to me this day. And he sware unto him, and he sold his birthright unto Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and pottage of lentils, and he did eat lentils, and he did eat and drink, and rose up and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. So you have the, uh, the, the contrast of personalities in these guys laid out nicely here in Genesis 25. Um, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but we'll let that as it is. Esau goes hunting. Now, one of the things that Scripture does not tell us is uh, how long this hunt lasted. Could have been three hours, could have been three days, could have been three weeks. We have no idea. Uh, some time ago, they unearthed the bones of a, uh, of a farmer. And I want to say that it was, I remember when I read the story about five or six years ago, that, uh, that it was 
someone who would have lived somewhere in this time period, give or take, you know, 500 years. But one of the things they discovered is that uh, their av your average farmer for that day had the general physique of our physique and strength and, and muscle mass of our marathon runners today. That was your average person. These were guys that were in serious shape. They had they had um, they had diet of you know meat and vegetables that they grew from the ground and things like that. So you imagine Esau. This uh, now the Bible talks about him as being this hairy, well-figured person, and he goes out into the field to go hunting. And we don't know if that involved running down his prey or not, but it very well could have. Chasing something until the animal simply gives up, and then you kill it. And you thought you were in good shape. Sorry, so not. Um, but either way, in any case, uh, Esau comes home and he is starving, or at least he says he is. He's hungry. He comes in the house, essentially, and Jacob has a pot of stew ready to go. Esau comes in and uh, says, Jacob, I'm so hungry, I'm about ready to die. Can you give me some of that stew? And what does Jacob say? What are you willing to pay for it? Now, remember, these guys are in their 70s. I have two boys, you know, Kai's seven and Judson's four and a half, and I'm, I'm remembering how things were when I was growing up, let's just say, and children can be incredibly petty at times, right? Adults can too, actually, but, but children are especially good at this, like anything to get a leg up on the other person. You know, they're not allowed to play with, Kai's not allowed to play with Judson's toy, but he'll poke it. I'm not playing with it. Or like this afternoon when he came in during prayer after lunch to get something. And he... <laughs> Crazy kid. Time for him to be back in school. So he goes and gets what he's supposed to get. And I noticed when he ran out of the dining room that he comes in through the conference room. And I was like, okay, maybe he's just taking a shortcut out through my office. Well, I find out tonight that Anissa was in here playing at the time. And he had been teasing her earlier and gotten her all fired up. And so he came through the conference room intentionally because he knew it would bug her and then told her that he was going to kick her, even though he wasn't planning to. He had no, no intention of kicking her, but he just he had to come through and, and mention that as he was, as he was you know, going through the room. Like, that's the sort of thing that kids do. And as you read the story here of Jacob and Esau, you can kind of see that being played out. It's like Esau is the big, muscular, sports-playing, hunting man's man, and Jacob is the shrimp that stays at home with mom and, you know, sweeps the floor and cooks soup. But Jacob, you know, sees his opportunity here, and Esau comes in, and he's all hungry, and, and, uh, and Jacob, you know, sees an opportunity to say, what do you give for it? Now imagine, imagine um, what would have happened if Esau would have told Jacob to shove it and just simply go on and gotten the food himself. I'm guessing nothing would have happened. But it shows you where Esau was in his relationship to the idea that he was a son of the covenant. Because here's what happened. Esau comes in, wants a bite of food, and Jacob says, sell me your birthright and I'll give you something to eat. Now look at, the, look at Esau's statement in verse 32. And Esau said, Behold, I am at the point to die, and what profit shall this birthright do to me? Is that a true statement? I doubt it. And here's why. 
Imagine if, if Esau literally was going to die because Jacob did not feed him. What kind of repercussions would have that had for Jacob and his, and his life? And the punishment that would have come to him from not taking care of his brother when he was truly at the point of death. It's like, I doubt that's what was going on. I think Jacob is, is needling Esau to see what he can get out of him. And Esau says, fine, who cares? You can have the silly old birthright. And they have their little swearing ceremony there. And uh, it says that uh, Esau ate and drank and rose up and went his way and thus despised his birthright. What is actually going on here? So this takes us back to the story of, uh, of Cain and Abel just a little bit. And that is that, uh, for those of you who can remember all the way back into you know, July when we were talking about this, um, the, the story of Cain and Abel is centered around making the right sacrifice. It's not enough just to sacrifice something. It has to be the right sacrifice in the right way in order to please God. Now, you come here, okay, so, and, and, and we're thinking a sacrifice is being, the definition of a sacrifice is being giving up something now in order to gain something in the future. You with me? What happens in this case? It's the exact opposite of that. Esau gives up the future in order to have something now. Make sense? He sacrificed the birthright. He sacrificed what was coming to him in the future in order so he could have something to eat now. And philosophically speaking, we do that all the time. You, at least I think we do, right? It's like, I know I should study for my test, but right now I feel like playing volleyball. Sorry, that was not pointed at the nursing students here or anything like that. But, but that's the idea. It's like, we know there's something we should do, and yet... Who cares? I'd rather have this, and so we do it. So you take that attitude, and you multiply it, and you compound it, and that's what you have here with Esau. You have, who cares about the birthright? I'm hungry. I don't care about that. It doesn't mean anything to me. He sacrificed the future for the present. But the problem is, it's not just, it's not just any future. He's giving up his position as the leader of God's people. Because essentially, that's what, he was going, that's what his birthright entailed. It was the right of the firstborn. He's giving up his position as the leader of God's people for one lousy meal. The other thing that, that is interesting here is that uh, Esau did not try to barter down Jacob's high price. It's like he doesn't even enter the discussion. It's like Jacob says, sell me your birthright. Esau says, fine, whatever. It seems that impulsively, at least, Esau couldn't care less about his birthright and the blessings and responsibilities that came with it. The Bible uses the term that Esau despised his birthright. And what that means is that he undervalued it. It's not the same word as hate when God says in Malachi 1, 2 that God hated Esau. It's not that same word. But, but the, the word despise means that he esteemed it of lesser value than what it was worth. <clears throat> Which means that he undervalued the covenant with, of God with Abraham and everything that went along with that. This is not the last of Esau's apathy toward the covenants of God. Let's look at some of the things that happened later in Esau's life. And Esau was 40 years old. Sorry, this is before that. And Esau was 40 years old when he took to wife Judith, the daughter of Beeri the Hittite, and Bashemeth, the daughter of Elon the Hittite, which were a grief of mind unto Isaac and Rebekah. Esau goes and in direct violation 
of what Abraham had wanted for his children and what God had commanded them. Esau goes and marries local Canaanite wives. Now, later on, we read in Genesis 28, I'm going to go, I'm just going to read this. Some of this is conjecture, but I think it's interesting. Genesis 28, 8, and 9. And Esau, seeing the daughters of Canaan, pleased not Isaac his father. Also, okay, sorry. And Esau, seeing that the daughters of Canaan pleased not Isaac his father, then went Esau unto Ishmael and took unto the wives which he had, Mahalath, the daughter of Ishmael, Abraham's son, the sister of Nebajoth, to be his wife. So later on, Ishmael or Esau sees that Isaac and Rebekah are not happy with his choice of wives, and he goes and marries the daughter of Ishmael. Now this has been interpreted two ways. One is that Esau is actually trying to get his act together, and instead of marrying another local woman, he goes and marries a cousin which was somebody that was still within, technically within the clan of Abraham. But the, uh, there's, there's two sides to that. One is that Abraham may have, or that Esau may have been you know, somewhat repenting, but he did not divorce his first two wives. And there's this idea that, um, because Esau was planning to kill Jacob after Isaac died. Rebekah tells Jacob that, and that's why he ends up fleeing later. There's this idea that Ishmael and Esau were plotting together to take out Jacob. And the two of them would continue the Abrahamic covenant. Now, <clears throat> that's that's a sort a story that comes down from rabbinical sources. It's not necessarily in the scriptures, but we don't know exactly why why Esau did everything he did. And we find out later when uh, Israel inherits the land of Canaan that God actually sets aside an area called Edom and says that is to be for the descendants of Esau. Like that is their land. You are not to conquer that. You are to let them alone. So God looks somewhat favorably on Edom later. But why did God hate Esau? So that's the question here. If you look at the story, why did God hate Esau? And, and here's the question. Is it possible that God rejected Esau partly because that's exactly what Esau did to God? He ignored the call of God's covenant on his life. He rejected the responsibility of leading out in the tribe of Abraham, and he deliberately brought impurity into the family of God by marrying heathen wives. You look at the life of Esau, and it seemed that he was willing to give up everything that was sacred and right in order to do what he felt like doing. And then we come to a passage in Malachi where God says, I hated Esau. And we look at it in the context of how Esau operated, and we're like, is there any wonder that God has that to say about Esau? See, it's easy to just pull out that verse and say, well, God just chose this for Esau. And I'm not saying he didn't. But when you look at how Esau lived his life, it was not something, he was not a man that was interested in walking as God wanted him to walk. So what are the lessons from the life of Esau? One, God allows us to choose in spite of our upbringing. Esau had everything going for him, as far as I can tell, and yet he still chose to throw it away to get what he wanted. Now you can say, well, God told Rebecca that, that the elder would serve the younger, essentially that Jacob would be the one that would rule. Yes, but that did not mean that Esau was disinherited. That was a role of function. Esau could have had a tribe in Israel right alongside Benjamin and Judah if he would have wanted to, and he chose to lay that aside. Second, or along with that, I should say, we are free to choose 
We are not free from the consequences of our choices. God allows us to choose. God allowed Esau to choose. And Esau's choices had consequences. God did not protect him from those consequences. Next lesson, God is not limited by our imperfections. That's more the story of Jacob. And I'm hoping to get into that next time. God is not limited by your imperfections. When God called you, as Ryan likes to say, he already had your stupidity factored in. And yeah, that's a Hoover quote, but it's actually true. God had Jacob's imperfections figured into his plan long before Jacob was born. And thirdly, our decisions for or against God may just be reflected by him. What do I mean by that? So as I was looking at this story, it seems to me that we want to put God in an either-or box. Either we always get to choose, or God always chooses. And I, and I think we do ourselves a disservice by saying that. Because my friend that I was talking to about this story, who was more coming at it from the angle that God makes his choice, he told me about his salvation experience. He did not grow up in a Christian home that I know of. Um, he was a... What did he do? Oh, he, uh, he painted temporary tattoos. So like he he would like he was like homeless in Spain and in Europe, and like he would just go like work on the beach or or uh, have a little stand like in the touristy areas in in the city wherever he was, and he had his little shop. And tourists that would come through could just stop in and and he would paint like a, a henna tattoo on their arm, and it would you know good for thirty days or whatever. That was what he was doing. And he was in Poland, I believe it was, and he started reading the New Testament. And I don't remember if it's something that somebody gave to him or if it's something that, uh, that he actually ended up going and buying because he was interested. But he has, he has no way to explain how his salvation experience happened. Like, he had no good reason to be interested in the things of God. And he picked up a New Testament, he started reading it, and he said as he read it and as he was going through the, the scriptures, God just got a hold of him. And he was saved. And the reason he says that that was just the work of God is he's, he's, he's like, it's nothing that I did. God literally got a hold of my life and changed me. And so that's where he's coming from when he, when he says that this is the work of God. Um, and, but, and so, so then we could say that, well, then God orders everything. Everything that happens is God will, and this is just his choice. And on the other hand, we could say that everything that happens is based solely on my choices. God is never going to go outside of what I want for myself. And that's not true either, is it? If that were the case, none of us would seek after him. And so I don't, I, we run into this danger of wanting to throw a box at God so that we, we have that figured out. And I don't think that's the case. I, I want us to be careful about how we apply that to the story here. But it does seem to me that there are instances where if you choose to walk away from God long enough, God, there may come a point in time where God will step back and say, fine, if that's what you want go ahead. I won't stop you. And at the same, on the flip side, I think, I also believe Second Chronicles to be true, where it says, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of those whose heart is turned toward him. That's a really encouraging verse. That God is watching for people whose hearts are torn towards him. And as he sees that, you can imagine him kind of getting behind you and pushing you along. That happens too. And so as you look at the choices of Esau, you can see him going away from God and going away from God and going away from God. And it seems like God steps back and says, fine, Esau, have at it. Maybe even, 
I'll help you along. And yet, when we look at our lives and we look at Scripture, we see that when we turn our eyes toward God, it works the exact same way in a positive sense. And Song of Solomon talks about... Um, I didn't actually take the time to look up this verse, but if you read Song of Solomon as, as a relationship between God and man, and I'm not trying to allegorize the whole thing here, but uh, if you look at Song of Solomon as that, that this is a story of God interacting with us, you read that when I turn my eyes heavenward, the heart of God quickens. You know how you get excited when you see something? Maybe it's the person you like. Maybe it's somebody you haven't seen in a long time that's a really good friend. Just just like to get that text or to get that to hear to see their name on the phone that they're calling me or to see them across the room and you're like you like a smile comes to your face just because that person contacted me. Like that's the kind of relationship we have. And Song of Solomon talks about it that when we turn our eyes toward God, his heartbeat goes up. His heart rate goes up. Excited that we're looking at him and looking toward him. And I want us to think about this story in that sense. That when we look toward God, he gets excited and he moves us along. Now, later as we go through the story of Jacob, we find out that it took him, actually took him quite a long time to get to that point. But I think this story should give us hope. That as we turn our eyes toward God, he helps us. And that's what matters. All right. <sighs> Crit, Maria, and Alicia, I suppose we'll let you go home. But we will miss you. It's been great having you in class and working here at Mountain View. I hope you all enjoy your last day off. If I could have, there's, I think there's a few of you that weren't here for testing today. Uh, COVID testing, if you don't mind stopping by my office today.